Welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, where we hope to bring you close to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson. I'm here once again with my co-host, Carly Harrod. Hi, Andy. So today we're at Queen Elizabeth Country Park, and it is absolutely beautiful here today. The beech trees have got an amazing show of colours on at the moment. Yeah, it's a lovely fresh crisp day, and it's nice to get out somewhere like this, isn't it? It is, and we're here today not just once again to enjoy the fantastic views that our countryside has, but also to meet James, who works with our tree team. Hi James, great to see you today. Good to see you too, Andy. And such a lovely day as well. I mean, it's it's absolutely breathless, no wind, but... It is a little, little nippy, but the sun is shining and we're out in Kiwi Forest. It's nice and fresh because there was a good frost this morning. So yes, but uh, it's a lovely day to be out and about. It is indeed, yeah. So we're at Queen Elizabeth Country Park. I mean, maybe a bit of your story. I mean, you were the senior ranger here for a little while, weren't you? That's right, yeah. I was a uh, senior ranger here for two years um, and that, that covered the whole of, whole of Kiwi Forest and the whole of Buxer Hill. So a good good mix of forestry and, and tall grasslands. Yeah, so, um, and then fr- from there, I've now moved on to the Trees and Woodland team um, with Steve Peach. And we're now covering the, uh, the whole of the County Council, Hampshire County Council, uh, covering the ash dieback issues and the, the tree safety across all the county parks. So. As well as some of the tree planting. The tree planting is involved in that as well. And, you know, then that all ties in with climate change and, and all our other other projects we've got going on. Yeah. So. But QE, so it's a... Um, the Queen's Country Park, or QE as we tend to call it, yeah. uh, it's a bit of a strange park because actually it's, you've got the A3 that goes right through the middle mm. and Hampshire County Council itself owns the ground on the other side, which is Butts Hill National Nature Reserve. That's right, yeah. Which is mainly open chalk grassland yes and then you've got all this on this side of the road which is mainly woodland but this is owned by the forest commission isn't it that's right this is this is owned by the forest commission and i believe i can't remember the exact date but it was all once downland um which the forest forest commission bought uh sometime in the past and planted up um with millions of trees and and we're standing in it now and we have predominantly beech which I I believe the the forester that planted it all um, looked at the Chilterns and and said, well, it grows well there. It, yeah. it should grow well here. So, so yes, most of the forest here is uh, is beech. Yeah. Uh, but we do have a few uh, compartments of western red cedar, some spruce, um, and some hemlock as well. Because forestry commission relates to forestry. It was a, it's a bit of a strange word, forestry, because the actual original word for forest mm. was about a hunting reserve, and you. You know, right. most people think it means trees. Yes. Uh, but the forests in old days were the royal hunting preserves. Yes. And quite often they had no trees at all in them. Right. But yes. now it's turned to the fact that forestry definitely means trees, doesn't it? It does indeed. Yeah. Yes. Because yeah. this is a um, commercial forestry. It's not one of the native woodlands as we think about it sometimes, is it? No. No, that's right. It's uh, it is it was it was all planted for um, the commercial sector, um, the beach. I mean, when it was planted, would have gone into things uh, such as the furniture making. Um, they did a lot of, um, I know beach was actually planted. They did a lot of clogs out of it and, yeah. and things like that back, back in the day. Um, so it was all planted for that reason. The, the conifer, so the red cedar and the spruce, more planted for the construction industry, uh, cladding, 
planking, um, beams, the the joists that go in your house that hold your floors up, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so the, I mean, we we just stand between two different blocks here. Obviously, we got we uh, we got beach over there. Yeah. Um, and quite often people will notice the difference between that um, sort of beach woodland and the sort of beach woodland you might get in the New Forest, which is native and naturally grown. Yes, yes. This is, as you say, been planted. Mm. Um, and it tends to be quite dense, doesn't it? A lot denser than proper native woodland. It does, yes. I mean, the the, the your, if, you, if you get in the woodland, you might be able to see that the trees are all in rows. Um, and that's for harvesting pro, uh, purposes. So the machines can go down and, you know, cut out what they want and, and get in between the trees quite easily. So you can sometimes pick up those lines um, they're also then grown quite close together to make the trees draw up so that you're getting as much height and as much timber out of them as possible. So, and you also you've got a nice straight trunk as exactly. well. Exactly, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, in terms of biodiversity in a native woodland where, they, where the tree will grow naturally, it spreads out a bit more and you get little more nooks and crannies in it and funny little you branches, do. which is what you want for biodiversity. Yes, yeah. Um, but as you say, it's grown tight and close to get it nice straight trunks, which are easily, easily harvestable. That's it? right, yes. Although, they, I mean, I have to say there is value in this in biodiversity because this is a native plant, um, is, yeah. you know, a beach. Um, and it'll have a lot of species which feed on it and feed on the seeds. Indeed. Um, so there is value as in, the, you know, the wild biodiversity in plantations as well, isn't there? Oh, of course, yeah. There's always, um, there's always value in biodiversity in uh, commercial woodlands. Um, ideally... Um, what we what we do have here is a, is a bit of a monoculture, so we just we just have the one species pretty much across the whole site um, or, or the large compartment, which isn't fantastic for for wildlife because you know if you you've only got kind of a certain amount of species that will feed on those trees and, mm. and use them. So if you could you know mix it up a bit, some some foresters have done uh, they'll do three rows of beech and then a couple of rows of, of something else, maybe some oak or something, yeah. and then and, and mix it up. Um, certainly nowadays we're moving more to that that side, a lot more diversity with climate change coming on, uh, lots of pests and diseases coming through. Uh, the more diversity and the more different species of trees we can have uh, yeah. within a forest, it you know it helps to to mitigate against those you know those problems with climate change well that's the thing isn't it because if you've got a, as you say a monoculture just like you know you might have a monoculture of one type of grass and yes yeah you've got a bit of a monoculture in one type of tree here yeah you know and the trouble is if that one tree gets an issue then you've you know, lost your whole your whole stock yeah you've lost your whole stock and as you say you've got a diversity of things in there as well with other species you might have more of those natural predators of like some of the little wasps that's right you yes. know which might, you know, there might be a species. I mean, there are some problems with species. Some of the moths, aren't there? Was the oak processionary moth? The oak processionary moth, which is yeah, affecting a lot of a lot of oak around the southeast. Definitely, it's, yeah, it's coming on. You know, that's our our next challenge. That's for sure. Yeah, some of the I say with monocultures and non-native stuff because the oak processionary moth is it coming? Is it a non-native species? I believe so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes there aren't natural predators for those species either. Are no, there? no, exactly. So um, unfortunately. The, the only way or one of the only ways to deal with the oak possession moth is, is to spray with chemicals to, yeah. to kill it but unfortunately it kills everything else as well so well that's one of the big issues isn't it and that's probably mm. why because I mean this I mean looking at these trees how old are these trees do you think they are about 60 60 to 80 years old so I think, I think. 
from what I know of the site, I think it was planted up in the 1950s after the it, Second World it War. It was about that time, yeah. Because, I mean, there's an upper part of this called War Down, which That's suggests right. it was all open downland. Yes, yeah. And it, I mean, we probably wouldn't be planting on open downland these days, would we? We certainly would. So things know. have certainly changed. So the yeah. style of planting's changed, as you say, and yeah. what the mix you have in there as well. Mm. And certainly after the war, a lot of a lot of sites were planted up with pines for pit crops, and the, the thought was that if there was another war, we're going to need the timber yeah. uh, because a lot of wood was used within you know within the wars. So, um, but then obviously we didn't have another war, so we have a lot of plantations certainly down in the south, uh, a lot of pine that have just been left, and they were they were planted on ancient woodland sites. Yeah, um, and so now there is a process of uh, a pause restoration. So plantations on ancient woodland uh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> and, that's it. and um and so there, there's a uh, a process of slowly taking out the pines and another species to bring back to the ancient woodlands yeah because that's a funny thing actually because we're talking about quite a lot of the planting here was on downland mm. uh you mentioned pause which is an acronym for plantation on ancient woodland sites yep. yeah um and you can have an ancient wooden site, but with not many ancient trees on, can't you? That's right, yes. And it's all about the ground flora and all the plants in the wood, mm. which are maintained. So you could look, it'd be quite odd sometimes, you could look at an ancient wooden site and think, well, the, the trees aren't that old. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's the value. I mean, it, on the poor sites is the fact that there's still the value in the ancient woodland underneath. So yes, slowly yeah. replacing that back with native plants and trees. Yes, and letting the, open up the gaps, letting the, the seed source that is already in the ground yeah. to come through and those native species to come through. Mm. So turning around, we were talking about some of the conifer species. There's a totally different trees on this side, isn't there? Mm, indeed. So we've got Western Red Cedar, um, some spruce a bit further up, uh, and some uh, Western Hemlock. Um, all species that don't grow naturally in this, this country. Yeah. Um, they are predominantly used for construct construction industry and fencing materials. Yeah. So uh, Western Red Cedar is very, very good tree. Uh, very good at rot resistance, so very good for cladding, that sort of thing, fencing. Um, spruce, very good in terms of its its structural integrity, so um, it can hold hold weight. Uh, um, so it's used a lot for the for the joists, as we yeah. said, for for the construction industry, the trusses in your roof. So um, hemlock, less so. We it, find, it seems to split out, so that kind of um, if you do two two longer lengths, it's it splits. So that's usually used for things like sleepers. So well, railway uh, sleepers, uh, not railway sleepers these days. More gardening, you oh, know, yeah. garden sleepers and stuff like that. So yeah, I suppose the railway sleeper industry is probably more concrete these days. But people are using it in their new gardens. In their gardens, sleepers, yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so where do these these conifer species come from? Spruce um, is mainly comes from the Baltics. So up Norway, Sweden, that, that kind of way, the, the Baltic um, forests up there. Uh, Western Red Cedar, I believe North America, yeah. that sort of way. And, and Hemlock is a uh, is North American species as well. That's one of the issues as well in terms of biodiversity in the fact that, uh, as I say, spruce is a European species, mm. uh, but not native to Britain. Yes. Um, and they'll, Sometimes things like some of the, the crossbill flocks, which is the type of finch which feeds on the cones of these, yes. they quite like the spruce cones. Yes. You know, so there is some ability for some of the sort of native species you do get in this country to use those species. Mm. Um, 
but certainly the American species, they won't have so many of the, uh, the moths and things like that feeding on the leaves, will they? No, n- not so not so much. No, yeah. so they're, they're not not as not as good for biodiversity yeah. in those terms, I suppose. But it's a commercial crop. That's the one thing to think about. And actually, the other thing is it's a it's a renewable commercial crop, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So these trees will grow, and you know they'll take they'll be on a rotation of around forty years, maybe fifty years. Um, and they'll be slowly thinned out over those uh, 40, 50 years. And every year, the trees will be putting on a certain amount of incremental growth. So you can take out a certain amount of trees and actually you've still got the same amount of volume within the wood. So you may be taking the trees out, but the trees that you've left have put on that same amount of wood. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a, a renewable source. And at the end, when you've got down to your, your last few very, very large trees, you've hopefully, if, you, if you've managed it well, you've already got your younger trees coming up um, in the gaps. And, and that's a well-managed commercial woodland. Because, I mean, it's, it's, you don't do so much clear felling and clear an entire block these days, which would have been common practice. Wouldn't it? it would have been common practice. And certainly in Scotland and Wales, they still do clear very large areas. Um, and the problem with that is it just uh, wipes a, a whole you know, landscape clear of trees and the connectivity between the remaining woodlands is, is completely lost for, for wildlife. So there's definitely a new trend now to, to make those clear fells smaller, uh, make them irregular shapes um, and certainly get get the uh, structure of the woodland so you've got young plants coming up in in between uh, and so that you know so the wildlife can continue to to flow through the woodland so because there will be wildlife in here i mean it's it, it's not a totally dead dead zone oh no it's not as not. rich maybe as some of the native wood well definitely not as rich as some of the yeah. native woodlands yeah in terms of species of insects and plants and animals in there yeah but yeah. it still has quite a bit of value oh certainly um yes. And actually, with these days, we're in a climate change emergency, and it's mm. a lot of people think that so, you know, trees are trees are definitely part of the solution to that. Yes, but, yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to become an issue with you suddenly. Cut, what are you cutting down trees for? Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but one of the things to think about because the trees are um, they photosynthesize like other plants. So what they're doing is they're taking in carbon dioxide yeah. out of the atmosphere, and they break it up basically. Mm photosynthesis yeah um so they release oxygen so they put the carbon into the structure of the tree itself so that becomes part of the living part of the tree um it, that's right yeah the the living part of the tree and then as new layers of of the tree grows it then gets locked up into the center of the tree yeah which is the the heartwood and so yes it's locking that carbon up in in the tree now, when the tree obviously falls down, if it was to fall down naturally and then rot back into, into the ground, that carbon's released back into the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, by cutting the tree and turning it into a product, maybe a, a housing product, you're then locking that carbon up for a longer period of time. Yeah. So it's, it's locked away and not gone back into the atmosphere. And that's what you mean by the term sequestration, is it? That's right. It comes from a, a Greek word. I'm right, right, right. it's a Greek go. word. Um, in hiding it away right so you know that's quite a nice little term so basically you lock it in i mean certain measure goes into the soil through the trees roots Indeed. and things like that as yep. well um but it's i like that lock you know hiding it away and locking it away yeah because i can go and sequester myself in a nice little cottage at the west coast of scotland <laughs> yes. you know it's the same meaning really um but yeah there is the thing but also I mean, people don't realize sometimes that trees breathe and respire like mm. us as well so when when it's dark 
Mm. They're breathing out carbon dioxide, aren't they? That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I mean, there is, if you if you cut a tree down, because um, the conifers don't regrow from the stump, do they? No, there are only uh, there's only one that I believe does, which is the coastal redwood right. from uh, North America, Oregon that kind of Washington state and that will coppice what we call coppice so yeah. if you cut it down it will then regrow from that stump um, and it's the same tree it's the same root system but it's just growing new branches yeah. so but most of them no won't won't yeah. regrow but most of the broadleaf trees like we're talking about the beach here will regrow from the stump that's right it? yes so you can like yeah. I say coppice um, and regrow so with the conifers you tend to replant that's right yes right because they, I mean, do they produce viable seeds that can grow for seedlings? They do, yeah. So in a, in a well-managed woodland, um, you would slowly thin out and create create gaps uh, within, and uh, the seeds will fall down. And certain species do better than others, um, depending on their shade tolerance. Something like the Western hemlock um, is very shade tolerant and so grows up underneath its own canopy. Right. So if you go into a... a compartment of, of hemlock you'll see lots of lots of little seedlings underneath mm. something like spruce is less shade tolerant so it's um you won't see so many seedlings unless there's a gap in in the canopy and there's actually light going down to the floor so there will be a period when this is cut down where you know this is a habitat will be emitting carbon yeah but then as it regrows again it then starts sequestering and taking in carbon dioxide in, indeed yeah, yeah. and the, the the best way to do it is to get it managed so it's doing you're doing it both at the same time you're slowly yeah. slowly taking trees out and they're growing at the same time and that's the thing about it being renewable it's a renewable building material that's right. um there's all sorts of uses which hopefully we'll talk about in a minute you know yeah. in terms of the timber and woodland but um it's not a fossil fuel no like coal or gas or oil or even peat in terms of producing energy yeah because it does renew itself naturally yes yeah. right. and as you say i mean even when you know because beaches can be quite a good building material for furniture can't it it can yeah and certainly um years gone past it was it was one of the favored um trees for for furniture and and to this day along with ash and, and other broad leaves it's you know it's used for still used for a lot of things so if you've got any beech or, or oak or other hardwood furniture in mm. your house that is a carbon store. That's locking away carbon. It is, it? yeah. And so the longer you can keep that that chair, that table, the, the longer that carbon will be locked up. Yeah. So we talked about how different um, sort of some of the conifers and the broad leaves and plantations are different. So actually looking down there, it's quite beautiful in the sun at the moment, isn't it? It's, it's lovely, yeah. Different colours certainly coming through in autumn. It's, it's gorgeous. So it's looking down at uh, some beach at the end of the ride here and actually across on the hill. Is that War Down up there? That's yeah, that's the edge of War Down, um, and at the moment you can see just an, an orange-brown colour coming coming through the canopy um, from the the bright green, greeny yellow that that it was in the summer. So this, I mean, beech is a, a broadleaf tree, as we call it, because yes. it's, it's most people think of it as a leaf flat. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and they, of course uh, they're. Deciduous means that the leaves fall off in the winter. So this is the autumn change before the leaves fall off, isn't it? That's right. Yes, yes. Um, but most conifers, they have like needle-shaped leaves, don't they? They do, yes. And they don't use their leaves during the during the winter. I mean, there are a couple. I mean, it's, 
Larch. There's does. a few. There's Larch, um, and there are um, some of the redwoods. So the dawn redwood uh, loses its leaves as well. All right. Okay. Yeah, because the thing is that um, what these trees, all of these trees have got, is a massive surface area of leaf, haven't they, compared to grass, of course. Yes. Um, and we've got the A3. I don't know if you might be able to hear it, but uh, well, we certainly can. Uh, we've got the A3 just down below us, um, cutting through, and that will produce a certain amount of um, pollution, you know, particulates in particular. Yeah. Um, and certain size particulates are really damaging to people's lungs. Mm. So having this sort of woodland right next to a source of pollution, a lot of those particles come up into the atmosphere and they get um, trapped on the leaves of the trees. Indeed, yeah. And sometimes conifers can be far better because they're slightly sticky, aren't they? That's right, yeah. Um, so these can filter out some of those pollutants from the atmosphere. Mm. It's clearly very valuable, you know, if there's a population nearby. So you've got Port, um, Petersfield just north of here. Yep, Petersfield's just four miles up the road. So it does quite a good value in terms of, you know, filtering a lot of pollutants out of the air before it reaches people who are living in Petersfield. Yes. So woodlands, it's got many, many values. Mm. Um, I said we're staying on a ride, so what do we mean by a ride? What's this track for? A ride um, initially basically is the infrastructure within the woodland. So it's a pathway uh, generally made by, by foresters to be able to get the timber out of the woodlands. Yeah. Out so it can be you know processed and sent off to the mill. So uh, here we're on a, on a hard track ride. Um, it's, you know, gravel stone. Uh, and that's that's so we can get lorries up into the woodlands to to uplift the timber and take it back out. But the edges of the of the ride are very important. Um, we we do want kind of a an eco layers. So we've got the high canopy of the trees, um, and then ideally have a, a shrub layer, um, and then a, a grass layer, and and then the ride itself. And sometimes the rides will be just grass, and you'll find things like snakes and adders yeah. out drying in the sun. Um, and there's lots of, you know, lots of food source in, in the size of these rides you yeah. know, for yeah. invertebrate and, and then birds and mammals. Because I think traditionally, because we've talked about traditional as opposed to um, more com commercial forestry practice, you know, so the ride would just be the route of getting in and out. That's right, yeah. But I think they've realised the importance of getting some light into these side bits. So I can see we've got plants like hemp, agrimony, there's going to be thistles, there's uh, dogwood there, which is a bush that produces little white flowers. Right, yes. uh, there's an elder there. And then you've got pieces like hazel and oak, I think I've seen through here. That's right, some willow. Yeah. yeah. Now, a lot of those are flowering plants. Indeed, yeah. Uh, which encourages the pollinators into these things, but also encourages some of those pollinators, the wasps and other insects, which will eat the caterpillars that are on the trees. That's right, yes. So they're natural predators are some of the problems in the forestry, aren't they? Indeed. And of course, being sheltered in um, amongst the woodland, this can be quite a lot warmer than an exposed site. So that again promotes the pollination in the summer as well, doesn't it? Yes. So, I mean, there's certainly a bit more value to this ride than just an access route, isn't there? That's right, yeah, yeah. It's extremely valuable in terms of wildlife. Mm. So when you come to harvest this, I mean, what, I mean, it's not guys with axes and saws these days, doesn't tend to be, does it? It doesn't, no. <laughs> um, since the invention of the chainsaw, um, yeah. it's, it's all become uh, mechanical now. And also 
uh, after the chainsaw, we have the, the timber harvester. So big, big machines uh, that can cut down the tree, measure it and process it into the logs that needs to be done uh, all, all in one go. So instead of a team of 20 men going through the forest, mm. it's now just one man cutting the trees, processing them, another man picking them up and putting them on the lorry. But you'll find stacks of timber up the size of the rides as well, won't you? You will, yes. So the the idea is the harvester will go through the woodland, processing all the wood, cutting the trees down, processing it, processing it into logs. Uh, a machine then called a forwarder will go through behind, pick up those logs and stack them on the side of the rides. Um, and then after that, the timber lorries will come in and collect those logs and take them off to the sawmills. <laughs> Some of the old days of how they processed timber, like, I mean, saw pits and sawyers. A sawyer was a guy who operated a saw, wasn't it? That's right. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's some of the old country names. It's a bit like Carter, isn't it? You know, you drove the cart around the farm. That's right. Sawyer yes. is an old name for a wood, woodland worker, yes. isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so you, sometimes in, in, in uh, old commercial forests, you will see the, um, you might find some flat areas where there were uh, charcoal pits or yeah. charcoal uh, kilns. Um, old, uh, like I said, uh, saw pits, so dug out long kind of rectangle shaped pits. Yeah. Um, and that's actually where the, the name Top Dog comes from. So yeah. <laughs> you were the top dog, you were the man who stood on top of the, the pit and the underdog would be the one down in the pit getting all the sawdust on his head. Yeah, because basically you lay the, the trunk of the tree across the pit. That's right. And then you've got a big long saw with two handles. That's it. And there's somebody down below getting all the sawdust on them and, you know, the horrible conditions. There's the top dog, as you say, yeah. is the guy on top. Yeah. Probably a bit more senior. You know, you get the apprentice down there, don't you? Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of these would have been used since Romans, well, even before that probably as well, because I mean, we're in the, just on the edge of the wheeled here. Mm. And it's quite a wooded landscape, isn't it, the Weald? It is, yes, full of nutrients. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, but it's also been, it's got far more woodland than most of Britain, in fact. It's a huge percentage of woodland. Yes, yeah. And as you go along down, because I'm originally from Sussex, which is over the border, um, as you go down through there, you find uh, furnace ponds and all sorts of names like that reflecting because there's ironstone in the ground that's right and there's wood for charcoal which you'd use to smelt the iron that's right they used to use a lot of your so if you go to west and east sussex you'll find a lot of uh hornbeam uh planted which yeah. uh, was coppiced um so it re regrows every time and that's planted very near where that ore is found yeah and so they used the uh hornbeam to make charcoal to, to then smelt down the, the ore. So, it's, yeah, a big, a big industrial landscape, really. Well, this is it, and people forget, I think, that this is, you know, a semi-industrial landscape in some ways. I mean, you've, you've moved those soaring activities away to, you know, to timber yards and things like that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be saw pits in the woods here. No, yeah. um, but it's a commercial living landscape that, um, you know, will occasionally, you know, look bad because it's partly been cut down. Yes. Um, but it's it's those resources we need and out of these timber, isn't it, which is really useful. It is. And, you know, every, every single person in the UK, um, I would, if you can imagine a, uh, a log, um, a, a piece of log, maybe 12 inches long um, and say six inches wide, that's about the amount of timber or wood that every single person in the UK uses every day. 
yeah. whether that's through paper, you know, for your work, uh, loo roll, um, uh, the energy that comes to your house. A lot of our energy providers now are, are green, so they're bio, big biomass uh, burners. We yeah. use obviously firewood. Um, so there's lots of lots of lots of uses for wood, and sometimes people don't realise it. The packaging that all our food comes in, yeah. cardboard, it's all it's all wood fibre. And although it does involve cutting down trees, which is you know quite a big issue these days, yes. um, it's that renewable, and it's far better than plastic, isn't it? It is indeed. Yes, yeah. We're, we're, we're putting a lot less carbon into the into the atmosphere by using trees and the re- renewable source of trees mm. rather than creating plastics and chemicals. Yeah. And you do find people planting, you know, on their own grounds, you know, where they're trying to live sustainably. Mm. They plant willow, which is what they burn in their wood burners to heat their homes, isn't that's, it? That's right, indeed. Yeah. Uh, and actually the centre here, I'm pretty sure is heated by wood chips, isn't it? It is. It has its own uh, biomass boiler. So it's uh, about 80% of the time, it's uh, completely, the whole centre is run on, on biomass chip. Mm. So, and that is just wood chip that has been uh, that has come from, so it's not the whole trees, it's generally the, the, the waste product of the tree. So when, when the tree's harvested, all the branches are knocked off. The main stem timber is, is sent off and processed into products as housing and as such like. And the, the smaller branches are then chipped up into small pieces and that's the stuff that's going into the birds. Yeah. So all those, you know, all those bits like the bark being cut off and stuff like that, you know, that goes to be chipped. Yes. Um, I mean, some of the, ari- they call it arisings when they take branches off the tree. Right. Yes. You know, they might well be left in some places to rot down naturally inside the woods as well, wouldn't it? Yes. So there's uh, good practice is that you'll, um, you'll leave a certain amount of the arisings in the woodland. So you're, you're uh, reintroducing those nutrients back into the, the forest floor. Yeah. So we talked about the different products out of um, these woods. I mean, some of the, you know, you go back a few centuries, there's a route that goes just from north of here all the way down to Portsmouth, which is now called the Shipwright's Way. And that relates to the old uh, practice of using particularly oak mm. in building the ships that, you know, built our Navy, basically. Yeah, that's right, indeed. Um, and the whole thing about one of the songs about, talks about heart of oak. Yes. And that's what the ships were, weren't they? Mm. And some of those oaks were specially grown to form certain parts of the ship as well, weren't they? That's right. So our, like you say, the, our Navy was, was built from English oak. Um, and the, the foresters would, would go out with certain temp- templates and, uh, and look for certain shapes. So the, the, the bows in, in the ship, they would yeah. try and find them within the tree. And uh, they'd also then prune the trees and encourage them to grow into those yeah. certain shapes. So, yes, they'd have these big templates and go out and, and try and find the right shapes for the, for the boats. And some of those masts were certainly, I mean, I think spruce was a big thing in terms of using masts, weren't they? Because it's different woods for different products. That's right. So um, spruce was used for masts, um, uh, European larch. Um, and so uh, I've sold uh, for, for the clippers, the, so the old clipper boats that yeah. are still, still around today. Um, and they, they mostly do kind of leisure tours. Yeah. Um, we've, we've cut down um, European larch for the masts for those and they have to be extremely straight and, and not free and extremely strong to, yeah. to withstand the, you know, the forces that they, they have out at the sea. And that's also the thing with wood as a building material is the fact that it's flexible as well as strong isn't it? It is yeah it's got extre- extreme tensile strength uh, as well as compression strength yeah. so lots of different species uh, are better 
we spoke about spruce earlier being used um, for its tensile strength in, in construction. Yeah. Um, the best tree or conifer tree for construction is the Douglas fir. Yeah. So even though it's not native to this country, we do grow it quite a lot because it is the strongest in terms of beams for housing. It is the strongest timber we have. So alongside oak, um, but it grows faster than oak. So. Mm. But also, I mean, cedar, I mean, you hear a cedar cladding as well and cedar shingles. That's right, yes. So uh, cladding would be the, the stuff that goes on the outside of your, your house to, to keep the rain out. Mm. Um, so Western red cedar is extremely rot resistant. Yeah. So uh, it's it's milled into into cladding, shingles for roofs. Yeah. So instead of your tiles, you'll have small, small wooden tiles or shingles instead. Um, and yeah, they're extremely resistant to rot, so it lasts a very long time. And also, they don't need chemical treatment to have that rot resistance, do they? Don't need varnishing or anything like they that, do they? Need, no. So the the natural tannins within the wood protect protect the wood. Mm. So uh, other other trees like pine that doesn't have those tannins, we would add a chemical to to help it, you know, not rot down so quickly. Whereas trees like western red cedar. The coastal redwood, those those kind of species, they have that natural tanning, and the oak as well has got got uh, sweet chestnut, another one um, with these natural tannins that just protect the wood once it's cut. And that makes it, you know, gives it additional benefits of being very green. And you're not using uh, things that source from uh, petrol products or you know artificial chemicals. No. You know, it's it's a renewable resource that will grow. You know, given the chance, yes. um, but also it's got that inbuilt resistance to to um, rot and things like that. Yeah, to withstand, yeah, rot and all sorts. Yeah. So, in terms, I mean, in terms of somebody's house, you could have clearly shingle, shingles and cedar cladding on the outside. You have different types of timber in the roof joists or in the beams supporting the floors. You could indeed, yeah. So you might have spruce holding your roof up. Um, oak beams holding your, you know, your, if you're more of an expensive house maybe, but holding yeah. up your, uh, um, the, the actual weight of the house, floorboards, um, you might have your, uh, uh, another species for your uh, skirting and your architraves, your doors. Because I, I more often worked on heathlands. I mean, one of the trees that we tend to clear to restore the, the um, biodiversity of sites is birch from that. It's quite a... It's almost seen as a weed species by some foresters, isn't it? It is. Um, birch grows so freely, it's a uh, it's, uh, pioneer species. So any, any space that is cleared, the seeds uh, will uh, you know, grow up in those spaces. So uh, certainly where, where areas are cleared, if the seed source is there, birch will, will come back. And, and on heathland, that is, that's usually the case. Um, but it's also free. So mm. a lot of foresters are seeing that, you know, why, why are we paying them planting trees when it's already there in the ground and and so if you, you let this this free source of seeds come up and thin it out nicely you can then have a good stand of trees because it is a lot shorter lived than most i mean an oak tree can last well several hundred years but a birch you know is probably oldest 150 200 years at most generally uh, an old birch will be something between yes 80 to 120 years maybe. yeah um and they and they become very you know very ecologically um, important at, at that age because the bugs get in and holes and mm. they're they're very important trees uh, along with oak, um, but oak yeah like you say will be centuries old. Um, a typical rotation for 
oak for a forester would be 120 years. Yeah. So if you ever plant an oak, you'll never you'll you'll never be the one cutting it down. Yeah. It'll be your grandchildren or their grandchildren. So quite often when we were clearing it off of heathlands, um, I mean, it was sometimes you just burn it on site because you need to get rid of it. But also there is increasingly there's more uses for it because I think we were selling it as people were making um, broom heads out of it, holds the bristles. That's right. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, broom broom heads out of it. It's also used for the um, horse horse riding jumps. So yeah. when you see the races, you, you've got those big those big jumps set up. They're all. They're all um, birch um, and now we're also baling it up so using it a bit like a sort of biofuel so baling it up and, and burning it as well because that's that's one of the interesting things because one of the traditional names for those sort of bundles of firewood is a, a faggot isn't it that's right indeed. you know so people used to cut those and actually take them i mean particularly gorse but also other smaller it's the twiggy bits isn't it yes and yeah. they're bundled tight together yes and to make your bread it would have taken about six to eight, maybe ten faggots to heat the bread oven up, and then you cook your bread in that oven. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, quite often this goes for firewood as well, some species, doesn't it? And that's quite, you know, that's the thing. It is being burnt, the calm's being released, but it's, it is a heating source just as much as the biomass border, isn't it? It is, yes. So we have, you know, a very big um, firewood industry within the UK. Um, so we, you know, and like you say, we are when you're burning it, you are releasing that carbon back into the atmosphere. But the idea is that we, it's a renewable source. We are then grow, growing more trees, which are then capturing that carbon back in. So it's a it's a cycle, hmm. um, rather than taking the coal out of the ground and just releasing it out into the atmosphere where it's not being renewed. Hmm. And one of the species clearly that um, is a native that we've got an issue with at the moment is ash, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, because yes. I mean, ash has it all its own uses. We talked about broom handles. Um, Lots uh, very, very um, famous with uh, furniture makers, very, very sought after uh, for furniture makers. And do we had the issue? I mean, it's quite. I mean, I don't. I don't think you remember it. The, uh, the problem we had with the elm, um, you know, in the countryside and Dutch elm disease and the loss of elm from this country. Yes. Country. Yeah. Yeah. The, du the Dutch elm disease. Uh, yeah. Wiped, wiped out. You know, nearly all the the large elms within within the country. Um, I believe the only place now where you have large elms is down in Brighton. Yeah. They managed to put up a, a cordon zone to, to protect the uh, the large trees that were there, so stopping the uh, the movement of wood in and out of Brighton and Hove. Uh, they managed to protect the large large trees there. But yes, it wiped out nearly all the large elm trees across the country. So. An elm was one of these trees that they used to, I mean, it was a feature in the hedgerows as well, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, it's one of the dominant trees in the hedgerows, you know, one of these large trees you get out there. And they used to cut the boards and that's what quite often the big barns are clad in, what they call wany edge boards. It's the, they've left the bark on even, you know, it's quite wobbly, but that, those elm boards is quite often what was made up the barns, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. And it's an extremely resistant to rot as well. Yeah. Very good. And also used down by the sea. So a lot of your uh, sea defences and the, the wooden structures that you'll see down in the sea, a lot of them were elm because it would last in the in the seawater for a very long time. And so a lot of it's still there. A lot of it's still there, but I mean, one of the issues, I mean, they're doing less of those sea defences anyway, but I mean, one 
tree that they used to replace that elm was tropical hardwoods, which is clearly a bigger issue, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Chopping, chopping the trees down in the across the world to bring them over here for our cedar, cedar fences is yeah, never a good thing. Yeah, carbon footprint on that must have been, well, it wasn't a carbon footprint, it was probably on a, on a sailing ship, wasn't it? Yes. But yeah, but the, nowadays the carbon footprint of those tropical hardwoods coming over here, you know, it's probably far better, well, it is almost <laughs> certainly far better that, you know, we use our own hardwoods, isn't it? That's right, yeah. I mean, there is a, there's a big push, um, certainly in Britain. There's an organisation called Grown in Britain, which is encouraging you know, people to use as much of the timber grown in Britain for their, for their products. Um, a scary fact is that we're second to China in our imports of, of timber, which is crazy for, for the size we are. Um, which, you know, we're, and, 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 you know, we use a lot of wood. It's, that's, that shows how much wood we actually use within the country. Um, and we, we, could, uh, we could reduce that by, you know, growing more trees commercially. Um, mm. But also you can, grow, you can grow trees commercially, but also have wildlife thriving through them. You know, if you, if you manage them well and have a, di- a diverse mix of species. And that's one of the problems at the moment is this... Tr- Distraction. The thing is, you know, we talk about the distru- destruction of the tropical hardwoods and the forest and the Amazon and Borneo and places like that is disappearing. Yeah. It's essentially what we did, you know, a couple of millennia ago here is get, get rid of a lot of forests. Build our navy yeah. But being particularly careful about not using those, because I mean, there's, there's a st- some sustainable use of tropical hardwoods and there's, you know, grown under, you know, harvested under license and things like that. But there's bound to be a mix of, you know, illegally taken stuff in that as well, isn't there? That's right. And it's very hard to uh, to know, you know, stuff coming from that far across the world, whether it has actually been cut, you know, uh, sustainably or not. Uh, in, in Britain, we have, a, you know, a very good um, standard um, for, for forestry and every, everybody who cuts and works commercially within the sector has to, has to go by that, you know, that standard mm. um, and we're you know we're kind of world leaders in in terms of that standard we just don't have a lot of a lot of witness so yeah because we talked about elm there you know and that the problem with that was a, a certain beetle that got in i think it was a native beetle in fact it wasn't an introduced beetle was it no i believe it's a it was a yes it was a, a native beetle and a fungus that lived on the beetle yeah and the beetle flew at a certain height so as soon as the tree got to a certain height um or, or the large trees that were already grown, the beetle would, would burrow into the tree, release the fungus, and then the fungus would, uh, uh, or, yeah. Kill the tree. Kill the tree. Yeah. yeah. And it's certain thickness of bark. You need, because it could, it doesn't go on the, because you get elm growing, coppicing, and getting little stems up. That's right, yeah. When the bark gets to a certain thickness and the beetle can get in, then it gets in and the fungus kills it. Yeah, so you'll still see elm today growing, but as soon as it gets to a certain height and a certain thickness and that far, like you say, um, that's, it, it has it, unfortunately. But it's a slight different thing with the ash dieback, which is clearly a big issue. You know, you're dealing with it all the time, aren't you? Yes, yes. So it's, again, it's a, it's, it's a fungal disease that uh, has come over from Asia. Um, and over in Asia, there are, there are different species of ash trees, but they've kind of grown and, and have lived with this, mm. this, this pathogen for uh, their, their, whole, their, their whole lives. Their ecosystem has, has, has grown up with it. But it, it, um, it comes, or the fungal spores 
fly through the air onto the leaves and they go in through the through the pores in the leaves um, and then they slowly wilt down the leaves and work their ways down the leaves into the twigs yeah now in in asia the the leaves would drop off and the the fungus spores would go down to the leaf litter and it'd be kind of that small cycle whereas here in england our ash trees have never seen this disease and are not capable of, of coping with it so it's it's slowly traveling into the into twigs and in the branches and it's tricking their uh, their immune system they they don't know that they've got uh got something wrong with them so they they can't uh they can't they can't deal with it they can't put in the uh put up the defenses that they yeah. would normally um so unfortunately it's you know it's tearing through our countryside um we've we've seen it through europe and denmark has seen nearly about 95 percent of all of the ash trees uh, fatally gone um, and we're looking probably at about the same rate, unfortunately. Because I remember in those days when I did used to use a chainsaw and things like that, quite often you had to be aware of some trees and the characteristics of them. You know, an ash was always one that when you're cutting it, it's got certain structure and certain um, strengths and which makes it good for some things, yes. but it splits quite easily, doesn't it? It does, it's very, which that's why the firewood market like it. So it's very, it's, it's good for splitting yeah. your, your, your logs. But also when you're, so when you're cutting the tree down, they used to call, watch out for the barber chair. Yeah. So as you're cutting in, in halfway through the tree, it would then split up yeah. and snap off, which would potentially, if you have your head in the wrong place, off comes your head. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, but so, it would leave what would look like a, a barber's chair. Yeah. Um, so, and they also call it the widowmaker. Yeah. And when a large ash now has, has you know, become um, infected with uh, ash dieback, and it becomes, you know, towards you know being dead, basically. Yes. Yeah. It's even more brittle, isn't it? And actually, really unpredictable. Somebody at the base trying to take it down. Indeed. For safety reasons. Yes, yeah. So yeah, the ash dieback, um, as as the the name says, it's it's a dieback disease. So it's, it starts in the leaves and starts to go back into the twigs, and so the branches become very brittle and and start dying off. So if you're a, a chainsaw operator and cutting the tree, as the tree starts moving, those top branches are, are starting to fall and will break mm. off, and it can be very dangerous. And we've had some some nasty accidents where people have been really seriously injured. Yeah. So we're trying certainly um, where we're taking trees out, we're trying to do it mechanically, so with machines where where the operators and the contractors are protected. Mm. So. So in terms of, um, the, I think, as far as I know, every single site that we've got ash on. Yeah. has got ash dieback you know right. yes. clearly we've got people walking on these sites it becomes brittle and therefore can start falling down and things like that Indeed. so what are we doing are we actually getting rid of all ash trees on all of our sites we're not no so all what, what we're doing we're we're reviewing all of our sites we're looking at the high use areas that we have and we are actively taking out the ash there where we know that there is a danger to the public uh but our default position is to leave ash and leave it to lock down and break down naturally in the environment mm. that it's in, um, where where there's no danger to the public. So certainly out in the middle of the woods where we don't have any paths um, or anything like that, we're going to let the trees just break down naturally and see. Because there's a lot of species. I think nearly you know 900 different species that rely on ash or are associated with ash. So we you know if we were to wipe out, take out all our ash. 
there's there's a problem there. You know, we're uh, there's a lot of species that are trying to lie. So yeah. we're going to let it let it break down. It could take ten years. It could take twenty years for some mm. of these trees to break down. So mm. that's our default position is to to leave as many as we can. <laughs> um, but saying that, there are we have a lot of roads. We have a lot of buildings car parks that we just can't do that so we yeah. are actively taking the trees out where we need to and there is still the hope though that there is some resistance in the native trees though isn't there yes yes we are hoping and from research we've had from denmark and and europe that there there are some trees that are fighting resistance it's not that they're not getting the disease but they're just more capable their their genes are more capable of dealing with it so we that's that's part of the reason for leaving as much as much ash as we can yeah. is looking for those ones uh, that might be slightly resistant and there is lots of research going on by the forestry commission and other organizations to see if there are other uh, you know certain genes of the ash or, or slightly different species that we can look at planting in the future because there's a ban on planting at the moment because it if you're moving trees around if you're taking them to a nursery you're moving the disease around as well aren't you there's no point in doing that yeah yeah and so and actually at one of our woods at crab wood just up near winchester recently i think we had kew gardens come out again right and i think they were back here about three four years ago mm. and they were doing certain tests on the ash trees right and they're repeating those tests yeah. to see if there's any resistance and it might be in one of these woodlands here actually we might have some resistant strains which can then repopulate you know the the woodlands and farmlands with trees that are resistant couldn't they yes that's right so yeah we could have somewhere in the middle of this woodland we we might have one of those resistant trees so we want to keep as many as we possibly can absolutely well it's been a lovely day i really enjoyed standing in the sun out here um <laughs> the frost has gone now so it's lovely and warm here but it's been really nice getting out it's good to meet you again james yeah you too andy thank you thank you james it's been really good to hear about the different types of management in our woodlands and it's great to get an update on the important work that you and the rest of the team are doing on ash dieback Yes, ash dieback is certainly going to have a huge impact on our woodland landscape, isn't it? It definitely is. We're going to see quite a few changes in the coming years. I also never realised how much we use wood for. We use it for furniture, home decor, construction, such as cladding. And down at River Hamble Country Park, we've made our own cladding for the new building that's going up down there. Yes, we had a patch of sweet chestnut down on site there and it's been around for 40 years, so it needed some management. Um, and what they did, they felled it and they turned it into slabs so they could clad the building in. Yeah, and so, it looks beautiful. Absolutely, and carbon footprint in terms of miles is virtually zero miles. Yeah. So are you ready for another of Carly's fun facts, Andy? I'm always ready. You know that, Carly. So today, approximately 50% of the world's industrial logging goes into making paper, and that includes toilet paper. And every 10 minutes, enough toilet paper is used globally to circle the earth. That certainly is a lot of paper, isn't it? Definitely is. Every 10 minutes, enough to circle the earth. I'm definitely going to be using a little bit less toilet roll next time. <laughs> and I also think in terms of, you know, all that junk mail we get, I mean, I might as well put a bin under my letterbox for all the actual mail I get mm -hmm. compared to junk mail. Yeah, and it's even worse when you think that 70 to 75% of the world don't use toilet paper and that's either due to cost availability or their culture or climbing systems so 
25% of the world's population use enough toilet roll to encompass the earth. It's a lot of toilet paper, Andy. It certainly is. I mean, it would require a bit of a culture change for some of us, won't it? It would, yeah. So I hope you have all enjoyed this episode of Looking After Nature. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, you can let us know by checking out our social media pages. And we'd really appreciate if you rate and review our podcast on iTunes as this helps other people find us. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time. 